0: I've never told this story to anyone. It took me a moment or two to realise what I'd just agreed to. The first mistake that I ever made in my life... She said, I'm leaving Broome now, I'm coming to meet you. The memory lasted forever. Wanted young, dynamic people to join our dog-sledding family. All I know is that...
1: This guy was the devil.
0: All the hairs stand up. It was like a shockwave going through my body.
1: Welcome to another podcast episode from Spun, a live storytelling night in Darwin. My name's Jessong, and the story you're about to hear is from journalist Eliana Lawford, who reveals the importance of identity and the power of tan in a can.
0: I'm a little bit nervous. I've never told this story to anyone before, Uh, not even my family, and some of them are in the audience tonight. So, here goes. Um, I'm a proud Wiradjuri and Anawan woman. My dad's dad is a Wiradjuri man from Orange in New South Wales, and... My <laughs> dad's mum is an Anawan woman from Urala in New South Wales, but I spent most of uh, my life growing up on a Awabakal and Warremai lands in Newcastle in New South Wales. I, as you can tell, am quite fair. Growing up, though, I have plenty of childhood memories and memories that are just like any other black fella. I remember going out camping uh, past... Uh, Stockton Beach in New South Wales, which is more my land, with um, an uncle, Uncle Jonathan Lilly, and watching him throw eight boomerangs up into a flock of birds, teaching the young ones how to get tucker. I was on entree on duty, so um, I went out with the aunties, and I just remember doing the pipi dance and swiveling my feet into the sand until you felt a pipi, and then you'd kick it up into the bucket and we'd all rush back and set them up on the rocks outside the fire and, um, until you heard the crack, and then you knew the entrees were ready. But uh, as I started my schooling, um, my Aboriginality became something that was questioned because I was so fair. I remember walking around with the sister girls at school and someone saying, what's that white girl always doing hanging out with all the black kids? And I was like, white girl, where? But um, I remember the first time that it actually really resonated with me um, was when someone said to me, oh, you're Aboriginal, but you're white. How much of you is Aboriginal? And I was pretty confused. So I went to one of the aunties who looked after all us mob there and I said, how much of me is Aboriginal? And she said, you tell them it's just your legs and shit can you run fast. (laughs) And, And... we kind of laughed it off. <laughs> I can't run fast. But uh, this was something I continued to get asked. You know, oh, so do you tick the box? Do you get things for that? And every time I was asked these questions, I became more and more disgusted with the colour of my skin. Um, that disgust, I guess, hit its peak when I was in about year 10 in high school and I received an Aboriginal scholarship and who says us black fellas don't get handouts? Living proof. I mean I didn't get a a car or a house or money but um, I got two weeks unpaid work experience at the ABC (laughs) And, and I was over the moon but then it hit me, I had this thought, how can I get up on stage as a black woman when I'm white. And that's when I discovered tan in a can. (laughs) The night before I had to go down to accept this award, I lathered myself up so (laughs) thickly in fake tan. I looked like one of those bodybuilders, like a tin man almost. I remember walking out the morning of, and my dad looking at me shocked, like, oh, my gosh, what's happened? And he just kind of laughed and said, well, bub, you look the part. (laughs) And I was the blackest woman to ever walk on that stage. (laughs) But from then on in, I actually became obsessed with fake tan. So much so that I actually wouldn't leave the house without it. I wouldn't go out with friends. I wouldn't go to parties. I wouldn't even go on dates unless I'd fake tanned. The boys all thought I was playing hard to get, but really I was just too white. (laughs) And the obsession grew from there and I wanted it to be more permanent, so I started researching online ways that I could make my skin darker. I came across these uh, tablets in America called Melanotan, and they were quite expensive, especially given I was working at Donut King at the time, on around a $6 wage. But anyways, I ordered these pills from America and I started taking them, and they made me so sick, to the point that I would have to hide from my family and friends and sneak off to throw up. But the fake tan and the pills made me confident in telling people about my culture and my bloodlines and my Aboriginality. There was then a point when I was um, in Year 12 and I was doing art with an auntie down in Sydney, Auntie Bronwyn Bancroft, and I was looking up at this photo on the wall and she said, isn't it wonderful? They forgot to put her gloves back on. And that's when I noticed her black hands. Her face was white. Her neck was white. Everything was white except her black hands. And in that day, it was in the 1930s, her name was Arnie Dulcy, and it was Bronnie's dad, Uncle Bill. They were quite dark black fellas, but the photographer had overexposed the photo in order to make them look white. And here I was Lathering myself up to make myself look black, and here they were overexposing the photographs to make them look white. If only we just could have swapped. But that was kind of a point in my life when I was actually felt okay, and Aunty Bronnie said to me, You just are who you are. Then last year, I uh, moved to Darwin to take a job offer. as a news reporter with the ABC. And the first thing I noticed when I moved to Darwin is, I guess, the amount of Aboriginal culture up here. Some of the blackfellas up here speak English as a second language, if at all. Especially in the remote communities, you know, hunting and fishing is still such an integral part of getting tuck for the day. And I felt like I was taken straight back to where I'd started. And I felt so white. I remember one of the days at work, I was sitting with one of the Aboriginal interpreters. As some of you may know, we uh, broadcast news in a number of different Aboriginal languages. I was in the studio recording one of these broadcasts with one of the interpreters, Maggie. And she was there speaking a language, picking up her phone, chatting to her friends. And I said to her, I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm actually Aboriginal too. But I don't know my language and I don't know my dances and I have white skin. And she looked at me and she said to me, we feel so sorry for you East Coast mob because you lost so much. And for the first time in my life, I realised that It wasn't my fault and I didn't have to carry around all this shame about not speaking my language every day and having such white skin. And as if she could hear all of the thoughts that were going on in my head, she put her black hand on top of my white hand and she said, Yeah, sister. I stood up out of that chair and I left 23 years worth of shame in it. And I walked out of that room as a proud, white Aboriginal woman.
1: I still get goosebumps hearing the end of Eliana's story, despite listening to it a number of times now. And I think it's her struggle with shame around her cultural practice, which is something I can really identify with. Eliana now works for NITV. She told her story at our event as part of Garmalang Festival, which is an Indigenous festival up here in Darwin. This podcast episode featured sound editing by Rosa Ellen, music by Lashlo Hassani, and story production by Patrick Horton, with funding support from Darwin International Airport. My name's Jess Ong. Thanks for listening.